Good morning. It's Saturday, October 3rd, and you are listening to the fourth edition of Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. Good morning. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the show. How are you, Michael? Uh, I'm good. <laughs> you don't sound good. You're very hesitant. Yeah. Have you ever heard of this app called Citizen? Yes. For all our listeners, it's basically an app and it gives you hyper local, sort of like, say you hear sirens in your neighborhood, you're like, oh my God, what's going on? Like, you go on Citizen and it's a good thing and a bad thing. It gives you information, but sometimes too much information. But like, it'll tell you, like, police are responding to a disturbance, you know, two blocks away from your house or there's a fire. And it'll show you the heat map of the area and what's going on, right? So I don't use this app because, like, many people these days are just don't want more anxiety sort of like triggers fed into my brain, right? But the other day, a friend of mine who lives out in Brooklyn sent me, he's like, an alert he got on, on Citizen, and he looks at it and he says, man walking down street, punching trees and cars. And sometimes I feel like that's what I feel right now, but that's probably what you're detecting. But otherwise, I'm fine, and I'm so happy to be here. And it's Saturday morning, right? Did I render you speechless again? As usual. I don't check Citizen app, Michael. I can only take so much bad news. Yeah, exactly. You've got to sort of parse it out. But the good news was I got to see you yesterday in the office. We both stopped by, right? Oh, it was lovely. You know, there were four of us there. We got to see uh, Anjali and Madeline from our marketing team as well. And I have to say it felt a little crowded. Felt a little crowded. It did. Crowded house. But that being said, I miss the days when we used to have cocktail parties in there. It seems so quaint. Yeah, but they'll return again. So can we start about what I think is probably going to be one of the most talked about pieces in, in the issue this week? Let me guess, Elena Claverino's piece on what's going on in Europe. Yeah, this is basically a story about the young, maybe young kids who have a little means and access in leaving New York for Europe, right? Right. So Elena's a reporter for us. She's probably a Gen Zer, wouldn't you say? I don't know if HR allows me to speculate on people's ages, but sure. <laughs> Well, I think it's safe to say Elena covers this this sort of beat very well. So she wrote a piece for us earlier this summer about the parties that continue to rage in New York despite lockdown. Now she's talking about a new phenomenon in which many jet-setting millennials and Gen Zers are going to Europe. She posits that New York is feeling like a bit of a downer. Now, I personally disagree, Michael. We can talk about that later. But she talks about how the city is entering autumn and it feels a little bit melancholy. And although New York will come back, a lot of New Yorkers have gone to their parents' homes or to their second homes, or she writes for the lucky few with means and nerve to sidestep U.S. travel bans, Europe, where you can be in Rome this month and Paris the next, and where restaurants and bars and clubs are largely open. First, we should talk about the fact that this is likely a very brief moment in time. I don't think that this ultra-open society is going to continue, especially given the numbers that we're seeing come out of Europe right now. But um, Ellen is having a grand old time over there, likening it to the 1920s, when Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald and that set left America for Paris, which did not have prohibition. So it's kind of an interesting parallel that she draws between lockdown and prohibition. Primarily, the you know, she's interviewing her sort of age set and who's sort of like, back then they're fleeing prohibition, now they're fleeing social distancing and, and sort of skirting the... I just want to remind everyone, there is technically a ban on Americans getting to Europe and, and entering Europe, but of course, there's always ways to skirt those things and that's what, you know, people who either have like sort of scammed work permits because of their jobs or maybe have sort of like have access to a second passport because their parents might be of a European descent or something. So file it under iProblem Solutions, and that's where they're going right now, right? Yeah. Again, I keep going back to the temporal nature of this story because as our buddy Don O'Neill of the New York Times 
always says, we're in this period of the hammer and the dance. And right now, Europe is dancing, but the hammer is going to come down at a certain point. But, you know, for now, people are having a grand old time, uh, you know, relocating to Spetses, living in Portugal, and just having a completely different experience from what we're having here. Although I will say, I think New York feels livelier and more vibrant by the day. Yeah, and different experience just overall in terms of like, you've got people like Olmos Schnabel, who's Julian Schnabel's son, saying, I'm just going to like, want to shoot a film in San Sebastian, then I might wander over to Sicily when the when it starts getting cold, but just different experience. She's got one of her, a friend that she knows, an Italian-English Harvard student, Uberto Tarantelli, who tells her that he and his friends from schools, including Georgetown, Bob Babson, NYU, have created a, quote, makeshift campus in Paris for a month where they've rented apartments next to each other, and then they're going to do their classes remotely, and in the following month, the, the 40 or so of them might go on to the next destination. So not exactly my college experience, and I fully admit, file it under envious person right now. My European experience is sort of like back packing, you know, with my rucksack and, and a bar of Toblerone and some orange Gina and living on a Eurail pass. But I digress. I think it's it's a fascinating piece of reporting and social reporting. And just like there's a whole different experience happening out there right now. So it's definitely, well, I think, a piece people are going to be talking about right now. Certainly. And I guess my advice to these college age kids is enjoy it because you guys are going to be inheriting one hell of an economy. So if you're able to sort of have fun this year and optimize this terrible situation full of Zoom classes, go for it. But it sort of reminds me of my junior year abroad, Michael. I studied in Paris and went to class like a handful of times. Sorry, mom. And everything was past fail. So I still managed to get a degree, but I did get a different kind of education, let's say. It was a different version of the hammer and the dance? <laughs> a very different version of the hammer and the dance. I mean, it was that, that sort of proverbial your rail pass experience that you write about. But I mean, I still think about that period of my life all the time and have such great memories from, you know, living in a fifth floor chambre de bonne in Paris, you know, like a little maid's room and, you know, taking an easy jet flight to London for the weekend. It was great. Maybe we're digressing. Anyway, more power to you guys. Have fun. Enjoy your time out there. Just stay safe and please, for the love of God, wear a mask. Yeah, and just remember, hammer in the dance. They're dancing right now to like a lot of techno beats from famous DJs. Yeah, DJ Duda. There's a DJ in this piece that I couldn't even keep track of where these people were. They were in Spetsis, they were in Greece, they were in London, Italy, Sicily, I mean, all over the joint. Yeah, but like I say, I fully admit I'm envious. But on the other hand, Europe is seeing an uptick in numbers, so I'm not going to be a downer. I'm not going to be a downer. They're heading for a lockdown in the south of France right now. We'll have a French resident on next week to discuss this. Reminds me of a Clash song, Working for the Lockdown. (laughs) Play that one, DJ Duda. So listen, speaking of dishes delivered and meals delivered, here's a little segment I'm going to call Dish of the Week. We've got Andre Leon Talley this week writing a fantastic book review about, well, you fill us in, Ashley. It was such a treat to work with Andre on this piece this week. So he's reviewed Barbara Emile's new book. It's a memoir called Friends and Enemies, A Life in Vogue, Prison, and Park Avenue. And Emile is a friend of Andre's. They've known each other for many years. They first met back in 2002 when photographed her for a center of book spread in Vogue. Now, Barbara Emile is married to Sir Conrad Black, or Lord Conrad Black, who might not be a lord anymore. But Conrad Black was a media baron and a very wealthy man and the two of them were sort of the toast of the town and then of course conrad black ended up going to prison for fraud in anyway conrad black ended up losing a the bulk of his fortune getting entangled in legal woes and eventually going to prison and so barbara meal writes sort of about you know her rise and fall in society and how that all transpired and andre having known her for so long has so much rich detail to add to this it's an absolute delight to read um even as just sort of a fly on the wall into this surreal world so it's a 
608-page memoir, and in it, Emile compiled lists of her friends and her enemies. And needless to say, Andre is on the list of friends, along with Rush Limbaugh, Anna Wintour, and the late Jane Wrightsman. On the list of enemies, well, you'll just have to buy the book. But there's so many brilliant anecdotes in here, and also a lot about her sex life, a topic that I'm always interested in reading about, uh, including the time that she picked up a man on the streets of New York, took him home, had sex with him, and then allowed his Doberman to lick whipped cream off of her body. So if that's not a juicy read, I don't know what is. This is me speechless. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, she's in her 80s now, right? This is like Jackie God. Collins. And I've heard about Jackie Collins' books. I've never read them, but and not that there's anything wrong with that, but like 682 pages? 608 pages. But Andre assures us that you'll relish everyone. Wow. We'll get him back on the podcast. It's incredibly delicious. But if you don't have time to read the book, at least please read Andre's review because it's going to give you a essential conversation for your next dinner party. Yeah, or maybe ideas for things to request from Chewy.com for your dog. <laughs> I don't know. Should dogs be eating whipped cream? Isn't that like they're not supposed to eat chocolate? It's a good question. And honestly, I don't want to think about it too much because... Okay, moving on, Michael. Moving on to another culinary topic. We have a wonderful piece in the issue from David Camp about the 100th anniversary of everyone's favorite restaurant, The Waverly Inn. Tell us more. You edited this. So yeah, David Camp, good friend of mine, lives in the neighborhood here, wrote a wonderful piece this week about The Waverly Inn, which for those of you who know, co-owned by our co-editor-in-chief, Graydon Carter. And it just recently celebrated 100 years over there on Bank Street. And David does a really beautiful, sweet, sort of just little short history of the Waverly Inn and, and its place in the West Village and the place in the hearts of all of us, sort of tracing it back to when it was started in 1920, back when the neighborhood was much more about the Bohemians and sort of people coming home from the war. One of my favorite anecdotes, Michael, is that Carl Lagerfeld was so taken with the kitchen's roast carrots that he ordered them to go for his entire staff every fashion week. Like, that's so Carl. Why get the pot pie? Just get the carrots. I mean, Just it's... get the carrots. Like, and what kind of weirdo, sort of like dietary Oh, there's got to be some sort of, but I like the keratin in them. You know, I don't know. Can you imagine being one of his staffers and like seeing this this big delivery from the Waverly come in and you get super excited because you think you're going to get like the halibut or the Dover sole or something. Or you're going to get the, the, the truffle mac and cheese. Oh, the truffle mac and cheese. Like you think like, oh man, this will be great. I'm working like a crazy person during fashion week. This is what I need, some carb loading. And instead you get like, it's like something that Yoko Ono delivers to you. Like just like three carrots or something, right? Like it's a performance dish. Totally. It's too much. I mean, and how disappointing, like you just get 700 carrots and that's all you have. So then you've got to go to the vending machine and like buy one of those nature's way granola bars just to get you through the night. It's such a fun piece. I mean, like for those of you who remember 1970s bands, small indie bands, the Roaches, there's a, there's a great cameo here by Terry Roche, one of the members of the band, about when she was a waitress. I remember her sort of like quasi not so successful period at the, at the restaurant. So it's a beautiful sort of like, it made me eager again to eat out in New York and maybe as today, beginning indoor dining in New York. So the Waverly has a great outdoor dining space set up right now in the corner of Bank and Bank Street over there. But indoor dining starts tonight. And that reminds us, Ashley. Michael, do you have any plans for this evening? Let me check my calendar. Oh, looks like you and I are having dinner tonight. Ooh, dinner a deux. And where are we going? A little uh, dive up on the east side that I like called Danielle. Oh, that's right, Danielle. The Michelin three-star restaurant owned by Daniel Belude, the flagship of his Dynex empire. Of course, the natural place for us to spend a Wednesday night. Yeah, Elena can have Europe. I'd rather just be slumming it at Danielle tonight. Agree. I'm not eating anything today in anticipation of what's to come. Oh, that's too bad because I sent you some carrots. <laughs> 
I'll put them in the fridge. I've sort of gold-bellied them to you. Well, you know what I watched last night? What's that? The first five minutes of this new show, Ratchet, on Netflix with Sarah Paulson. It was incredibly gory. It was actually too gory for me. I had to turn it off. It's the new Ryan Murphy show, so you can sort of imagine what the uh, art director like. But apparently it's the number one show on Netflix right now. So will you be going back? I won't be going back. Instead, instead don't laugh. You all know I've got lowbrow taste. I watched Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 film version. Well, that's not lowbrow taste. It's not too lowbrow. Okay, so I've been going through a Curtis Sittenfeld moment. After I read Rodham earlier this year, I felt the need to go back and revisit some of her other novels. A, they're wonderful, and B, they're escapist. I went back and reread Eligible, which is her retelling of Pride and Prejudice in, like, you know, a 2013 Cincinnati context. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, but then I felt the need to watch the film again. Anyway, so the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice is the one with Kira Knightley, but I forgot how many incredible actors are in it. The Bennett sisters are played by none other than Jenna Malone, Rosamund Pike, and even Carrie Mulligan. I mean, it is an all-star cast. And then Matthew McFadden, whom some of you will recognize from Succession, he plays, who's the evil older brother in Succession? The one who's married to um, the redhead? I stopped watching Succession. Anyway, so the guy who plays Shiv's husband in Succession plays Mr. Bingley in this version of Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, it is so much fun. The set design is beautiful. The costumes are incredible. It actually was nominated for a ton of awards that year. Anyway, if you need to some escapist television, I do recommend it. That's pretty good. I was excited this week because sort of uh, photos of the next season of The Crown appeared. So I'm just getting excited for that. Hey, speaking of sort of like pride and prejudice and sort of like period things, I want to go back to our good friend Alexander Marshall reporting from France this week, a story you worked on about crazy, the most popular French amusement park right now. And it's called, what do we call it? It's called Puy du Fou. And I have to say, I'd never heard of this place. Alex had, but it became the center of controversy earlier this summer. Puy du Fou has over 2 million visitors a year, and that's second only to Disneyland in Paris. Alex writes that it's the most popular French amusement park you've never heard of. So it's tucked into this beautiful corner of the Vendée region, which is southwest of the Loire Valley. She describes it as Colonel Williamsburg reimagined by up with people, but with better taste and far more questionable politics. Its founder is a guy named Philippe de Villiers, and Philippe de Villiers is a a right-wing aristocrat from the region. Aren't all aristocrats right-wing, by the way? (laughs) Maybe not all. Find me a left-wing aristocrat. That's the man by dog moment, but like, like, don't we just all assume, is it redundant right-wing I'm just asking. Perhaps. So he started doing these sort of like reenactments, reenactment shows back all the way back in the 70s. And within a couple of years, it became a major hit with tourists. So this thing sort of grew and grew and grew over the years. And it's, it's basically a park that's dedicated to the glory of France. So think Legoland, but with historical reenactments. It was also what I love is like it was the back during the lockdown. It was the first sort of public park to be reopened, right? So it's sort of France is sort of it's not going through as profound a woke period as as the U.S. might be going through, but it's sort of still getting caught up in identity politics right now, right? And sort of like left and right and what versions of history that they're going to be interested in, right? So this park is kind of, I think she says, it's run by this guy who's basically Steve Bannon and Foulard, right? Wow. It's a fascinating piece of cultural reporting because, again, it's, you know, you sort of go to a country and you don't realize you think everything's been sort of Americanized. The French, of course, like as any country should, has its own culture. But then to, to realize something so large and so influential that you have no idea existed in it, it's, it's why it's a pretty fascinating, eye-opening piece. Yeah, and the story has forward spin, too, because de Villiers, who's in his 70s, announced that he is not counting out a run for president in 2022. Uh, he told a French television station, I'm in good health and I 
don't want to die a coward. Country is breaking down. That's terrifying. Sounds familiar. Alex posits, if he really wants to make things right, maybe he should just pass on the number for his woodworking guy and leave it at that. So that sounds like quite a spectacle over there at theme park. But um, what have you been watching? Any spectacles, any crazy things this week? Aside from the debate? You had to bring it up, didn't you? Sorry, couldn't resist. Look, we won't talk about it because it's old news at this point, but after that disaster, I did need a palate cleanser, so I found myself browsing my favorite algorithm. Thank you, Netflix. Speaking of the debate, can I just say one thing? Of course, go ahead. You're reminding me. I watched a pretty damn great documentary the other night. You may have heard of it. It's called Boy State. Whatever happened, and we all have our things we can no longer unsee based on Tuesday night and the debates, but so Boy State won won the Grand Jury Prize for Documentary at Sundance this year. It's made by a, on an Apple TV film by Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. And for those of you who don't know Boy State, it's this sort of American tradition here run by the American Legion, where each summer they take kids in every state around the Union, and the kids all go to the state capitol. They kind of reenact what it is to the idea of voting on a governor to lead them, and they vote on a platform. These two people run for governor, and then they get elected, basically, right? It opens with prominent people have done this, people from Cory Booker to Dick Cheney to Rush Limbaugh, even Bill Clinton, you might remember that sort of very famous photograph of him shaking hands with John Kennedy when Kennedy was president and came to speak to Boy State. So it's got a, a sort of important place in American politics where it, it really sort of brings the next generation of political leaders or aspirational, aspiring political leaders into it's sort of like their kind of farm system, right? But it depends how you look at this documentary. But what's, what's so fascinating is you can see how quickly and how fast the, all I can say is this modern era and the discourse and the lack of discourse and how things have already trickled down to how to run a campaign has already trickled down to 16, 17 year old, 18 year old teenagers in America. I mean, if, if you want to see who's coming up behind Biden and Trump, and how they've been impacted by the level of discourse or lack of discourse in the country right now. Take a look at, at Boy State. It's a thing I think it's going to be in a long run. I have no doubt it's probably going to be on the short list for Oscar nominations for documentary this year. It's really on Apple TV, so take a look. Fantastic. Make sure to watch it. In terms of news stories, by the way, we did neglect to mention my favorite cult. Nixium. Yes, sir. Nexium, how did you know? It's been such an interesting week for Nexium followers. I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't at least talk about it, no? Is it Nexium or Nexium? I don't, I, I, it's Nexium. Yeah, I mean, Nexium, it's like it's been a crazy week because speaking of rich people behaving badly or crazily, you've got one of the Bronfmanaires probably going to go to yep. prison, right? Absolutely. You're on the beat. Tell me what I need to know. Well, it's been a big week for Nexium. So Keith Rainier, who's the founder of this group, if you will, is awaiting sentencing. So he'll be sentenced next month. He was found guilty last year of fraud and all kinds of other crazy things. Claire Bronfman, who is one of the heiresses to the Bronfman fortune, right? Yeah, she's a 41-year-old daughter of philanthropist and Seagram CEO Edgar Bronfman. And she funneled tens of millions of dollars towards this guy, but she refuses to denounce him. And we've seen a lot of other Nexium inner circle types from Hollywood and beyond coming out this week, refusing to denounce this guy, despite the fact that he was convicted of turning women in the group into sex slaves and they were branded with his initials shocking. Yeah, it sounds like it could be chapter in that 682 page book that you just talked about but are there Dobermans in this? No Dobermans, at least not that we know of. And Allison Mack is also awaiting sentencing and Allison Mack is an actress. She was on the TV show Smallville and her wife has come out and also refused to denounce Rainier. They maintain that he's a good guy and they, that they got a lot out of their involvement with Nexium. So why? Why? 
Well, you know who else has sort of come out of the ether to talk about Nexium is Amanda Knox, who was convicted in 2009 of murder in Italy. It was famously overturned, but now uh, Amanda, a.k.a. Foxy Noxie, signed a petition demanding that Brooklyn federal prosecutors answer questions about alleged evidence, jury and witness tampering, and all these other issues in Rainier's sex trafficking. Yeah, I kind of feel like Amanda Knox is a character witness. <laughs> so it's not taking you very far. Agreed. Michael, on the arts front, Tell me a little bit about this David Hockney exhibition. You know what? This is a great exhibition. You know, we talk about like young quasi-creative kids of a certain means swanning around Europe right now on sketchy passport and work permits. That's just my interpretation. Please don't quote me. And then you've got David Hockney, who's 83 years old. And right now he's been sort of living up in Normandy, in northern France recently. And he was so inspired by his time there and his sort of sojourn to the north of France. He did a, done a phenomenal collection of drawings, sort of with markers on paper, large scale. The origins, he was back in about two years ago, he was unveiling his Westminster windows in honor of the Queen. And afterwards, he decided to need a break. He goes to Normandy to sort of debrief, de-stress. And he found the great bio tapestry over there. And he started to think about sitting in his garden at this home. He did an amazing series of drawings. I happened to see them about a, year, a couple of years ago when I was in Europe. They're so beautiful. They're so inspiring. And they're sort of like kind of just what you're craving right now life-affirming. And he sort of just does these sort of panoramic drawings and paintings from this Normandy studio. And they're now on view in Paris's gallery, Le Long. But you can see a slideshow of them on the site. Just beautiful. So really happy to have this week brought in by Julia Vitale, our arts editor. You know, Michael, before we go to Danielle tonight, I have reserved a time slot at the Museum of Modern Art. Wow. Nice. I'm craving a little visual stimulation. Yeah, good for you. You're doing the sort of like hitting for the serious cycle right now. Oh, yeah, by all means. Look, who knows when another lockdown is coming, so we may as well profit while we can. And here's my clamp song working for a lockdown. <laughs> On the music note, no pun intended, yeah. just before I came in to record, I saw a kind of sad little story across the wire, a great live. It's not in the issue, but it's a great live nonetheless for me. Mac Davis, some of you remember who he is. He was a songwriter, also had his own career, but he wrote a number of hits for Elvis that you probably remember. I'm sure Randall would remember, and it'd be great to have Randall on and talk about maybe some of this sometime. A little less conversation, as well as In the Ghetto, which went to number three in the U.S. back in, I think, the late 60s, and also Don't Cry Daddy. So he kind of wrote those kind of, when Elvis was going through his 1960s kind of comeback period, Davis wrote a number of big hits. But you may remember him from the 70s when he had his own career. Ashley, the song I'm going to say to you, I'm going to serenade you with it. Do you remember the song, Baby, Baby, Don't Get Hooked on Me? Of course. That was Mac. Davis. Wow. Didn't he also have his own talk show at one point? He was often on talk shows. He's one of those staples, I think, is even like, I think he even did the Muppet Show at one point. But then, even later, I mean, this guy just kept going. He worked with uh, Avicii, Weezer, and if you know the Bruno Mars song, Young Girls, he wrote the hook for that. So, the guy, up until recently, still had it, touching a lot of pieces of music in your life. Anyway, Ashley, don't get hooked on me. I won't. It's funny, Michael, one of the last concerts that I saw before lockdown was Bruno Mars for his 20 for Carrot Magic Tour. And let me tell you, I didn't know I was this big of a uh, Bruno Mars fan. I'm a huge Bruno Mars fan. Guy's an incredible performer. I cannot wait to get back at the Barclays Center and see another great show. Bruno Mars in person? Yeah. Can, can I tell you something? Please do. Tiny. Oh, yeah. Very, you can tell. You can tell, even from sitting in the nosebleed section. But the guy can, I mean, the guy can sing. Like, what a show. It was a blast. Little person, big voice.
voice. Little person dick voice. Yeah. Shout out to our mutual friend, Emily Ford, who invited me for that to that on a whim. And we had one of the best nights ever. And such a poignant thing to think about. Like, when's the next time we're going to be in a stadium with 10,000 people again? So that was the dance before the hammer. That was my dance before the hammer. Yeah. One funny thing we got in the issue, though, I'm not going to give away, but I just encourage everyone to read it. Speaking of dancing the hammer, Henry Alfred, one of the great humorists, goes all the way back to spy with Graydon and me and the gang. It's a very funny what if. This week, he's written one recently, what if Cher ran the U.S. Postal Service. This week, he's got a very funny setup. What if Lindsey Graham loses his Senate seat and decides to open a slightly dowdy gay bar called Feathers? That's another place I want to be on opening night. Feathers debuts minty white wine cocktail called the Timothée Chardonnay. Only Henry Alfred could come up with that, truly. Guy's a genius. Oh, Michael, before we go, I got to shout out somebody. Shout it out. The handsome gentleman whom I saw on the West Side Highway today, when I'm being a very good girl, I go running in the morning here in the city, and this morning I was out putting my miles in on the West Side Highway, and a very handsome gentleman saw me approaching, and we kind of locked eye contact. I was thinking, do I know him from somewhere? And then he said, love the podcast. Michael, we're famous. Wow. Now, I was wearing a t-shirt with your face and mine that said, please listen to our new podcast morning meeting. But aside from that. (laughs) Wow. That's great to hear. I know. It's kind of awesome, right? So we want to thank this lovely gentleman for listening. And we want to thank all of you guys for listening because it's such a treat to have you join us on Saturdays and Sundays and Mondays and whenever you can possibly get around to listening to us. But we're going to have some great guests on for you next week. And we would love for you to send us your thoughts on the podcast. Uh, You can hit us up on on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. And if there's anyone that you'd like to see us interview, by all means, send them our way. Yeah, bring them on. I'll be the hammer and Ashley will be the dance. <laughs> It's our sort of tag team. I think that should be our, like, DJ Hammer and MC Dance, or maybe it's too close to... Well, MC Hammer, Hammer already exists, Michael. Yeah, Sorry about so that. I can't take it. So, well, anyway, I was trying, you know, but just the Hammer and the Dance. Okay, we'll report back later on today with Dish from Danielle and hopefully with some chat with Daniel Balut. Wonderful. Well, Michael, we have a very special guest here today to speak with us about the advent of indoor dining, one of the most exciting things to happen to New York in months. Chef Daniel Boulud, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Michael, as well, for having me. Uh, well, we want to thank you for having us for dinner last night at Danielle, which was, as I told you at dinner, it was not only a dream come true for us, but I'm out of practice of eating such delicious food. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Interestingly enough, you were uh, one of our first guests for the reopening of restaurant in New York City at 25% occupancy. So congratulations to both of you. <laughs> it was really special to be there. I told Michael, I don't think champagne and food has ever tasted any better. <laughs> Thank you. And and um, I never run my restaurant at 25% occupancy. And I can tell you that it reminded me of the Louis Quinze in Monaco or one of those French fancy restaurants where tables are like 10, 12 feet apart. I know. It's, it's funny because before you came over, you were saying it feels like one of those grand old restaurants down in the south of France. And it's, it's so funny. But but then you, what you have to, what I know our listeners would love to hear is what it looks like inside and, and, and how you uh, reimagine the space a little bit with the Hermes fabrics. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, how beautiful it is now and how you've kind of softened it up and, and met the moment to make it uh, different for folks? I didn't get a chance to go to the south of France this summer. I always make a point to go to the south of France. But so is many, many Americans who didn't get a chance to go to Europe, to the Mediterranean or the south of France. So I felt like, why don't we bring the south of France spirit of flavor in the dishes and 
the mood of something maybe a little bit more party-like and, and summer-like uh, into the dining room. Well, it's beautiful. And, and I think as Ashley and I were saying last night, we fully felt exactly what you're saying. Like, no one got to travel this, this summer, obviously, certainly the Americans. And yet we felt completely transported to the south of France. But I think the other thing that transported us was the menu, which you've kind of reimagined a little bit. And I know, Ash, you were, I think, rendered speechless many times last night by the menu. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just haven't had food of that quality in so many months. And I, I think in some ways it sort of helped refresh our palates, right? we're so much more aware of all of the different sensations that come with eating food like yours. And that was one thing that struck me about dining inside. You know, it's not just the difference between being inside versus being outside, but when you're inside it, you're able to focus and concentrate on all of the things that are happening, not only on your plate, but in the restaurant. And I just realized how much I'd missed that experience. (laughs) Sweet. Well, I was very happy to see you inside the restaurant as well. And uh... But I think what's really was special about last night and, and whether it's Danielle or any of the other countless restaurants in New York that are now opening and, and, and doing indoors is I think we've all learned, again, I mean, the, the definition of comfort food, right? And I think the, how food gives us comfort in this, of these last six, now seven months. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, the, the, the menu, you got reimagined a little bit. Is there any, if I look, if, if Danielle told us what your comfort dish was on this menu, is there something really special for you? Well, of course, I mean, uh, there's comfort food and there's also nostalgia yeah. and uh, memories. For example, we do a salad niçoise. To me, there's not a single summer we can pass through without having me making a rendition of a salad niçoise just because the combination of the crisp lettuce, the combination of the crisp lettuce and the and and the anchovy and the, the eggs and the, and the and the beans and the the, the the tuna, we do the, the, the belly, we confit the belly in olive oil and with a lot of thyme and lemon peel. And then we also sear the, the, the loin of tuna with some spice, Provencal spice. So it's not maybe the average salad niçoise, but to me, it's as classic as you can get and as creative as you can get when it comes to expressing the flavor of Provence. But we have a super piece too, which if you give that blindfold to an Italian, he will think that this is a minestrone. <laughs> <laughs> I had that last night. It was what was going through your mind last night, Chef, when you welcomed guests back into the dining room at Restaurant Danielle for the first time since March? Welcoming the guests was surreal because I would have never believed that March 13, it was going to take eight months to reopen the restaurant. Uh, while it was a celebration, I think anxiety and excitement were blended together. Maybe Certainly, I had more anxiety than I had excitement. And I wish I could have, you know, like when you open a restaurant uh, or reopen a restaurant, it's all full of excitement. It's a party, basically. (laughs) You know, you pop the champagne everywhere and all that. But here, we had to be on... I mean, I felt like I had to be careful and on the restaurant and, and to really be respectful and careful for the safety of our guests, not to get out of hands. Yeah. New Yorkers being New Yorkers and fans of your restaurants being fans of your restaurants. Have you gotten any any unusual requests? Well, it's interesting is that when we used to run the restaurant in a normal way, everything was possible. Customer could ask for favor. Oh, I would love to 
uh, tonight I'm coming and I would love to have a roast chicken and can you make me french fry and, and you know I'm Danielle and I'm a nice guy and I <laughs> make the best roast chicken in the world and I can make this a french fry <laughs> and, and I will do it for my friend because he's such a good customer and he you know he don't mind and he's eating roast chicken and french fry at Danielle but he's going to want to drink a big bottle of burgundy with that and all that and I'm here to please and make people uh, happy but in this time uh, even if the menu is small people feel blessed that there is something wonderful to have right now we have guests who request tasting menu so we said well it's very easy you choose two appetizers we're going to split them in half and then you choose two main course we're going to split them in half and then make you uh, uh, already a four course menu if uh, you want to also split a dessert that'll make a five course usually that work quite well and we haven't got to the eight course but uh, eventually we will propose that so what's the biggest bottle of wine you guys have had someone come in for in the in the last couple months since you've been reopened last night we had somebody who had two i mean we we, we always have good consumer of good wine because we have an amazing wine list. Uh, last night, I tasted an 82 Mouton who was fabulous uh, because the good thing is that guests give me a sip. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good perk of being the, the chef. <laughs> exactly. Keep the chef happy. Not, not that I'm, I'm going around with my cup and try to pick up a little bit of wine everywhere. <laughs> But they, they want to make sure that they keep me happy. So they give me a little sip of their wine. So I had 82 Mouton. We had some amazing Grumier, Volnay, uh, Burgundy. Um, I don't remember which one uh, that was from Grumier. You know, white Burgundy from La Fleve. We had young uh, Asian uh, group who were, they were celebrating a birthday. They went all out, all out. <laughs> uh, well... That's that's what I, you want, right? Including Chateau de Camp to finish and all that. So, wow! Wow! So, in a way, we don't we're not here to to run a restaurant that does only provide that. But uh, I think at all level, we try to provide the same service, the same attention, the same passion. It's always nice to see it, and uh, people keep the economy up. Uh, in this difficult time, for sure. For sure. Well, Chef, thank you so much for speaking with us, and thank you for running a beautiful restaurant that reminds us why we love to eat out and we love to eat your food in particular. Yes, it's beautiful. Well, there. Chef, you know, you said, you said, you know, the people, it's good to, people like to keep you happy, you know, with a little, uh, with a little <laughs> Volnay or whatever, but I just want to say, you keep all of us very happy. All, all the chefs, all over New York, but you and everyone else. And, and But you're always so optimistic and so giving. And thanks for being here and uh, sharing time on, on the morning meeting. Thank you. And I want to thank many New Yorkers uh, in particular who have been helping me support many charities such as City Milan Wheel and also Food First Foundation, which we created to uh, support many food institutions in New York who were in need of uh, meals. Um, I'm very proud of that achievement during COVID. I think, uh, you know, it's one thing to reopen your restaurant, but it's uh, an important one to be able to support the community. Michael, will you please read us out? I'd be happy to. Hey, 
Morning Meeting is produced by Airmail Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor, as you heard, is Randall Poster. Our theme music, by the way, is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet, and we've got special thanks to Joe Prusicki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, please be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thanks for joining us.